Would you say a prayer with me before we look at Matthew? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that whenever we're gathered together, Jesus, you promise to be in our midst. And so we just acknowledge you that that's not just an idea, that you're actually present with us, and we're grateful for that. Pray that you just help us suppress pause on all the things that are going on in our, in our lives, which are a lot of things. Help us to have an open heart and open mind this morning. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear whatever it is you would like us to see and hear. Be our teacher and our guide. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. How are we? Sounds enthusiastic. <laughs> Let me start by telling you why I used to hate October the 15th. It's not because it's your birthday. I didn't know that. I'm sorry. Coincidence, Pastor Donna. Has anyone else not named Donna hated October 15th? No, it's a weird date to hate, right? I don't like it because when I was in college where I met my wife, we were both on basketball teams. And October 15th is the very first day that you can legally begin practicing for the upcoming seasons, regulated by the NCAA. And so no matter how hard I tried, a couple of years I did try, to be in basketball shape, October 15th was a horrible day. Horrible. You would go down to the gym and coach would just be like, start running. Just run. Run up and down and up and down and up and down. And for the next four or five or six weeks, pretty much up until Christmas, we were just getting in shape, trying to get in game shape. Before the season would really start in earnest, we'd be playing three games a week in January and February, March, and you don't have as much practice because you're there, you're in shape, you're ready to play. But it takes this really long period of time, sometimes two practices in a day. We used to say, like, you have to get your legs underneath you. Some of you have ever played these games. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes as uh, athletes, like, you, you get so sore, like, your legs would be so sore, they have these huge tubs of ice water. I mean, like this tall and this wide, like a vat of ice water. And you just get in and stand there so that your legs will go numb because they hurt that bad and it helps them recover. So like, why wouldn't anybody want to do this? It sounds really fun, right? Really enjoyable. This is the tra it was the training process that helped us get ready so that not only were we physically ready to play the games that we were wanting to play, that we were also know our part on the team and our uh, chemistry as a team. And um, maybe some of you can think about some training seasons that you've been through in your life. I'm telling you this story because Pastor Ashish did such a good job last week telling us about a training season that Jesus went through prior to starting his public ministry. This last, last week and the week before, we talked about how before Jesus started preaching and teaching people, he went through these two really significant training experiences, so to speak. Right? He was baptized by John the Baptist where he heard the father say to him, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And then he went into this wilderness kind of desert experience where the Spirit of God leads him out into the desert and he faces these temptations with the, with the devil where the devil tries to tell him like there's some better ways to do this ministry that you're about to do that will actually result in life being better for you. You'll be famous, people will want to worship you, and all you have to do is kind of fall in line behind me. And Jesus resists those temptations in this training exercise and says, no, I'm going to do it the way that God the Father is instructing me to do it. And so these wilderness experiences that we've been talking about for a few weeks 
are um, as a time I want to think of as a spiritual strengthening. Sometimes you hear the word wilderness, and you might think of being lost or it being a really unpleasant experience. But it's also in the Bible, being in the wilderness represents a time when God's people needed to prepare and be trained for the next thing that God was wanting them to do. And so it was a time for getting stronger spiritually for Jesus and for other people. That was particularly this time when God is helping us to clarify who we are and what it is that God may want us to do. So let me give you one more example from Scripture. When Israel was in uh, Egypt for about 400 years, they were experiencing oppression. And they were calling out to God to set them free. And finally, God brings Moses, and they are set free through these miraculous circumstances to go out into some new land. And God has this land all chosen for them. But when they finally get out of Egypt and they're about to enter the new land, they're too afraid to do the thing that God's called them to do. So they end up having to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, and Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness is a mirror of this experience. They have to wander around for 40 years till a new generation can be raised up that has enough courage to trust that God has told them who they are and that they can actually move into this new land that God's going to provide for them. And so sometimes God is giving us these wilderness experiences to prepare us, to make us stronger, to help us to get ready for the next thing that God wants us to do. I'm wondering if you can think back on your own life of any wilderness-like experiences that you've had. Times in your life where you maybe felt like it was really a hard time, a struggle, but now that you look back on it, you can see how there was some learning involved in that struggle time where you were being prepared to do something that God had in mind for you to do next. As I look back on my own life, I can see several of these sort of wilderness experiences that I've been through, but one that I wanted to tell you about this morning happened about 20 years ago. At that time, I was working for Wells Fargo Bank. I had studied economics in college, and I went to work for a bank, and banking was fine. I liked it. It was interesting work, but it just didn't feel right. It felt like there was something else that I was supposed to do with my life, but I didn't know what that was. And I was in relationship with Carissa, who's now my wife. Back then, we were dating. And the relationship was, was good. She was sitting here a minute ago. The relationship was good, but not awesome. I think she'd agree with that. And so it was just in a spot in my life where I felt like I didn't know what to do. Is this relationship right? Is this work right? Like, I don't really understand, but something seems off. And so over a course of a period of time, I decided that God might be leading me to go to seminary. So I moved to New Jersey and started studying at Princeton Seminary. And so I moved from this really nice apartment on Lake Calhoun, because bankers make more money than pastors do. So I was at this beautiful apartment on Lake Calhoun to this tiny dorm room in New Jersey where you just have like the desk and the twin bed and that's like all there is. And, uh, you know, away from friends, away from family, don't really know anybody, started studying Greek in the summer, which I don't recommend. And, um, but, but kind of getting some clarity because all these distractions and all these other things that I was part of all went away like as soon as I moved. And it felt like this period of time, I was there 10, 11 months, felt like this period of time where God gave me this wilderness experience where all these distractions were taken away and I could ask some questions and I learned to like fast on Tuesdays. I would take a break from eating a couple meals and try to pray more and listen to God more because I had the space to do it. And I felt myself getting stronger. And I felt 
that God could tell me a few things that I couldn't hear before. Like, hey, these are some things that need to change in your relationship with Carissa. And then hurry up and propose to her because she's awesome. Let's go. And then, you know, I felt like God was telling me, like, this is a good place for you to study, but I really want you to go back to Minnesota, and I want you to get involved in this church, and I want you to learn how to help lead a church. And I don't know that I could have heard those things while I was in this other spot living the banker life on Lake Calhoun. So sometimes God gives you these experiences where you just need some clarity, and those periods might seem really hard, but they're being used by God to train us and to clarify who we are and what it is that God may want us to do next. As I think about this uh, life that we're all living collectively right now, I want to suggest that maybe we're all in a kind of wilderness experience right now. Do you think? We've all been going through all kinds of challenges for a really long time of all sorts, but maybe it's also a period of training. Maybe it's also a period of preparation that's forcing us to depend upon God in some ways that maybe we didn't have to a few years ago. Maybe this is a period where God is helping us collectively to remember who we are as the church, as followers of Jesus, and remember also what we're called to do. So Jesus comes out of this wilderness experience that Pastor Ashish taught on last week with really great clarity about who he was, son of God, and what the Father was calling him to do. And so we're going to read this passage today about how he launches his public ministry in Matthew Chapter 4, verse 12. Here's how it sounds. When Jesus heard that John, his cousin John, John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Here's the quote from Isaiah chapter 9. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, has come near. I always think Jesus was way better preacher and more succinct than all the other preachers I've ever heard. He'd get things across in such a few words, couldn't he? Let me unpack this passage with you for a couple minutes. So it starts with this little half line that you might almost miss at the beginning in verse 12, where we find out that that John, Jesus' cousin, is thrown into jail. And if you know a little bit of the backstory of of John the Baptist, he's played such an important role in Jesus' life. He's the one who baptizes him. He's the one who announces to a lot of people that Jesus really is the Messiah. He's done all this ministry to kind of prepare people for Jesus' ministry, and he gets thrown into jail by Herod, the tetrarch, kind of the ruler that Rome has put in charge of part of, part of Israel, because he told the, the, the Herod's family that they were doing some things that they weren't supposed to be doing. Herod didn't like that, threw him in jail, and then later, John gets beheaded by Herod. He's never let out of jail. So somehow, this, um, this arrest of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, triggers something in Jesus that makes him think, okay, now's this time. I've been living in Nazareth as a carpenter, and now is the time where I'm supposed to move out of that lifestyle and into this public ministry. And when I say public ministry, I just mean literally going from mostly carpentry work to teaching publicly, preaching publicly, gathering followers together, 
healing people, you know, starting to travel around the region to talk to different people and teach different people. Jesus making a move here from his kind of quiet life in Nazareth to a much more public expression of his work. And so the text then tells us not only is John in prison, but then Jesus moves from Nazareth, his hometown, to Capernaum. And you might wonder, like, why does Jesus move from Nazareth to Capernaum? So I have a a map for you to kind of give you an idea of where it is he's moving from. Nazareth, kind of further west to the Sea of Galilee, Jesus walks up to Capernaum and starts to make his home over here on the northwest side of the, the Sea of Galilee. And if we can have that other map as well. So you can see the, the reference in Isaiah to, um, to Naphtali and Zebulun, that those are the northernmost parts of Israel, the couple tribes there, northernmost parts. And the Sea of Galilee is this little tiny uh, lake or piece of water there that's right on the edge of the border of Israel and the neighboring nations. So it's kind of way out on the northern part of Israel, a long ways away from Jerusalem, where the, is the heartbeat of Israel and where you know, everyone supposes the most important things happen. So why does Jesus move to Capernaum? Well, one, Capernaum is an international town. It's not just a Jewish town. It's a place where Gentiles, non-Jewish people live. It's a trade route, so it's an economic hub. People are coming from different countries into Capernaum. There's tax collectors there, so people are collecting taxes when folks move into the area, where they're doing business there. And also there's Roman military there because there's tax collecting happening. They're trying to protect the money that then gets sent on to Rome. So the move from Nazareth to Capernaum is a really big move in terms of the the kinds of people that Jesus is able to engage with at Capernaum. Capernaum is a way more multicultural space. And God is moving Jesus into this space so that he can preach and teach and heal in a space where lots of different people can experience Jesus. And that's really important. Jesus also was rejected from his hometown. We learn in Luke chapter 4 that as he was teaching in the synagogue and starting to teach and talk to them, they got so mad at him for saying that he couldn't perform miracles in his hometown the way he could in Capernaum that they tried to throw him off a cliff. And so he moves from his hometown, realizing that he's no longer welcome there and he needs to go to a new space. This city on the sea, Capernaum, is also a place where there's lots of fishing happening. And I think Jesus had an idea that he wanted some fishermen, people with just regular uh, work, not necessarily rabbis that he was going to call, but he was going to call regular fishermen to be his disciples, and he needed to go to where they were. I think it's so important to recognize that this pattern that God has throughout Scripture is represented in this move, that Jesus doesn't go immediately to Jerusalem, the heartbeat of Israel. He goes to like this northernmost fine point and starts on the edge of Israel, where there are people from every background, And that's where a lot of his ministry and a lot of his miracles actually take place before he starts the journey down to Jerusalem where ultimately he's killed and comes back to life. But it's just like God to start work on the edge with people that nobody would expect to be involved in God's work and move to the center rather than going right to the place where everybody would expect that to happen. And so Matthew is quoting Isaiah chapter 9 here in this text and telling us, again, that he does, like he does many times in the book, that the story that God has been telling through what we call the Old Testament is continuing right now. Jesus is not launching some brand new story. He's living into a story that's been going on for hundreds of years. So when he quotes Isaiah 9 here, and we read about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and this 
idea that people are living in darkness and that they've seen a great light, Jesus is living into that history. And the history that's being referred to is that several times in Israel's history, they have been conquered and oppressed by different people groups, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, there's a number of other folks, the Egyptians. And this Isaiah text is referring to a time where they were struggling with both the Assyrians and then on to the Babylonians. And people felt like they were living under a shadow, under this great darkness, because they were oppressed and they didn't have freedom to live their lives according to the way that they wanted to live their lives, according to the law. And so Matthew wants them to remember how this has happened before in their history and that God has brought light to them in these other situations so that when you're in a moment and you feel like you're living in darkness and you feel like there's not a lot of hope, one of the things Matthew wants you to do is look back on your own life and on the biblical history and say, is there ever a time that we've experienced this before? Is there ever a time when God has walked us through this the way that we need God to walk us through it now. And so it's so important for Matthew that his readers remember this is all, these are all things that have happened before, even though Jesus is doing them in a new way. As I thought back on our own history as the church, I thought there's a couple of moments maybe that could be helpful with the darkness that we're dealing with at the moment. One of them is that over the course of several health crises, over the last, say, 2,000 years the church has been involved in, at several points, especially one where there was plague in the Roman Empire, the church has responded by, at great risk to Christians' lives, bringing people in and providing them health care, providing them um, food and clothing and care that they needed when other people have completely rejected them for fear of whatever it is that they might catch from them. And in several different places in history, the self-sacrifice of Christians in health crises have caused other people to become Christians. Because other folks look around and they say, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone risk their life to bring someone into their home at that point who has the plague? But if someone has the plague and, they, and they're taken in and they recover, guess what? They become a Christian. And so there's this opportunity in moments like the one that we're in to say, how do we follow the God revealed in Jesus Christ who gives of himself, right? Even gives of his very life to continue to care for people even in these kind of crisis moments. A number of years ago, I was working as a consultant with some churches in the Detroit area. And I'm in this church, in Detroit, really old church in Detroit, and the people were giving me a tour and they said, you have to go downstairs to the basement. I said, okay. So we go downstairs to the basement and they go down and they pull up this like trap door in the floorboards. And they say, we were the last stop on the, un, this particular piece of the Underground Railroad. And we're so proud that God led us to be part of helping people who are trying to escape slavery from the South get to the North so that they could be free. Now, this happened a long time ago, right? More than 100 years ago. And these people in this little church in Detroit are still remembering how God has led them to take risks and serve others and love their neighbor and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to people by helping to set them free. And that history helps give them confidence that, yes, we can continue to take risks to be part of the things that God is doing and make a huge difference in people's lives. As I look back even on Mill City's history, we started this church in 2008. Does anybody else know what was happening economically in 2008? 
It wasn't a good year if you weren't paying attention. It was a tough year. And then we look at back on it now, I think, well, why would God cause us to try to start a new church in a time where it was just such a financial crisis? And probably if Stephanie and I had known that back then, we might say maybe 2010 is a better year to start a church than 2008. But that's not the way God works. God knew that we needed to learn to be a church who could survive in tough financial situations in order to learn the kind of generosity that we're living out now. And so you look back on your history the way Matthew's encouraging them to do, to say, hey, God has been with us before in tough times. God has brought good things out of crises, out of pandemics, out of struggles. As long as Christians continue to follow their leader, Jesus, and act like him, then amazing things can continue to happen. Amen? God wants us to remember who we are in the midst of these wilderness experiences and to continue to ask God, what is it you want us to do as we're living through it? The last little piece of this text from today says that Jesus begins his preaching ministry with just this one line, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I just want to talk about that for a couple minutes. Repent. The word repent, I think of it as a way to say, I need to admit regularly. I do, we do, we all do. I need to admit regularly where I've gone off track in my life. When I need a restart in my relationship with God, where I might need a, a reboot in my understanding of how, how it is to be a Christian in the world. We need to admit when our priorities have gotten out of alignment with God's priorities, with the things that God cares about most. Sometimes when people hear the word repent, they think of Jesus or God like shaking God's finger at them saying, repent, you've done bad things. I don't think of it that way. I think of God regularly saying to whether you're not a Christian or you are a Christian, that God is regularly saying, you have to always recalibrate. You have to always keep turning back towards me because there's so many things that will cause you to get off course in the life of following Jesus. I feel like God is continually asking us questions like, is this really what you want your life to be about? Or is there a way that you could align it more carefully with who it is that Jesus says he is and what Jesus cares about? I think about repentance as a gift more than a judgment. I think about it as an opportunity to continually turn our lives back towards God, away from whatever has distracted us from the life that we know Jesus wants us to live. That God gives us many chances to restart, right? Every week we talk about repenting as we're taking communion. We can repent and restart over and over and over again as we reconnect with God, remember who we are, and listen again for what it is that Jesus wants us to focus on and prioritize in our lives. We need to repent all the time. It's a gift from God to continually turn back. When we take communion, it's a practice that we do this every week at Mill City Church. When we take communion, we usually take a few moments to just reflect on what it is we need to ask forgiveness for or repent of. And part of what we're doing every week is recalibrating, right? Restarting, saying to God, yes, there are some ways this last week where my priorities were not in line with your priorities, or I intentionally did some things that I know are not in line with what you want me to do. But I receive your forgiveness, I receive your grace, I receive your mercy, and I ask you to help me to realign with what it is that you would like me to do. Help your priorities to be my priorities this week. 
We ask for forgiveness for ways in which we have followed our own desire and our own agenda instead of God's. We want to live a life that's focused on loving other people, serving other people, looking out for the interests of others the way that Jesus, our leader, continually does. So Jesus begins this public ministry by inviting everyone to repent and turn towards him and align their way of living with his way of living. But he also announces the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven is near. And the thing I love the most about this statement is that he's not saying, the kingdom of heaven will someday be near. The kingdom of heaven is a really long ways off, and you can get there sometime at some point if you believe for a really long time. The kingdom of heaven is a hoped-for reality that you can get, be encouraged by. He doesn't say any of those things. He's describing what's real. He's describing what's already happening. The kingdom of heaven is near to you. What does that mean? What does he mean the kingdom of heaven is near to you? Jesus spends all kinds of time in Scripture, we're going to look at these in the next few months, trying to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven is. But here's a few ideas that help you get, get a handle on it today. One thing it means is that God's presence in Jesus is near. And sometimes in your life you might feel like God is really far off, that God is really distant. And Jesus is saying to these people at this time, like God is so close to you, you can touch God. God is present with you in a way that's tangible. It's not just an idea that God, you would actually feel God's presence when you're gathered for worship, when you're on your way to work, when you're engaging in service to other people, when you're with your friends, that Jesus could actually be with you this week in a way that you could sense. The kingdom of heaven is near means that God's healing is near. That people would start to come around Jesus because they knew that if they were in his presence, they might experience healing. Physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing, economic healing, relational healing, all kinds of healing. That Jesus' presence and God's presence and the kingdom coming near means people are healed of things that have afflicted them for a long time. The kingdom of heaven is near means that God's forgiveness is near. And the people that everyone has rejected in Capernaum and never thought that they could be part of God's movement in the world are now being welcomed by Jesus around tables as they ask for forgiveness for the things that they've done in the past and they're joining this group of people of disciples that Jesus is forming. That God's justice is near in the kingdom of heaven. That all the things that are wrong in the world, Jesus isn't going to just ignore but start to address to start to call people out, the people of power who have oppressed folks and say, you're not using your power the way that God has entrusted it to you. That when the kingdom of heaven comes near, people don't have to go through tunnels in order to get to their freedom because they're just free. That people understand that they're created in the image of God and that there aren't all these blockades and barriers and ceilings that prevent them from doing the things that God has created them to do. That's what life is like in the kingdom of heaven. And finally, that God's love is near. That the God of the universe doesn't just um, stay distant, but comes close to us and looks at us in the eyes and knows us better than anybody that you've ever met in your whole life and says to you with a smile on his face, I love you unconditionally. I loved you before you were even born. And I want you to be in relationship with me. And I don't want you to live in shame. And I don't want you to live in guilt. I want you to be free. And I want you to enjoy this group of people that I have called. And I have a special job for you to do. 
as we work to pursue God's mission in the world. And so I'll invite the band to come back up this morning. I want you to just try and imagine that you're having a face-to-face conversation with Jesus. I know that might be hard. That Jesus is looking you in the eyes with a smile on Jesus' face. And it's really important that you imagine the smile. That with a smile on his face, Jesus is looking at you and saying to you, repent. Turn towards me. Look at me. Be forgiven because the kingdom of heaven is near right now to you in all these ways. God is reminding us during this really challenging time we're all living through of who we are as children of God and what it is that God wants us to do. There are some risks that God is inviting us to take in the midst of challenging times to demonstrate the love of God in the world. Amen? So I feel like Jesus might be saying to us this morning, don't give up. And don't be afraid because I am with you. We've been here before. I've been with you before. And I'll be with you now. Trust me. We can do this together. I put a handful of short questions for you to think about. Maybe you can think about them when you go home. Grab the slides online when you get home. Uh, A few things that God may be inviting you to reflect on as we think about this story from Matthew 4. One is, just are you in the place that God wants you to be? Do you need a Nazareth to Capernaum type move in your life, whatever that might look like? Do you need a a restart in your relationship with God as Jesus is offering you that opportunity? Are you or have you been in a strengthening experience of wilderness that now you realize is helping you to clarify who you are and what God may want you to do? And are there ways that God is inviting you to repent, to turn towards God, to turn towards Jesus and realize that God's kingdom is near? Let's pray. Jesus, we can't even wrap our minds around how much you love us. But help us to get a glimpse this morning of your undying love for us. And help us to have the courage to keep trusting you in the midst of hard times and recognizing that you are building us up for the work that you have us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.